This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joy Chan. English Fairy Tales, collected by Joseph Jacobs. How to get into this book. Knock at the knocker on the door. Pull the bell at the side. Then, if you are very quiet, you'll hear a teeny tiny voice say through the grating, Take down the key. This you'll find at the back. You cannot mistake it, for it has J.J. in the wards. Put the key in the keyhole, which it fits exactly. Unlock the door and walk in. To my dear little May. Who says that English folk have no fairy tales of their own? The present volume contains only a selection out of some 140, of which I have found traces in this country. It is probable that many more exist. A quarter of the tales in this volume have been collected during the last ten years or so, and some of them have not been hitherto published. Up to 1870, it was equally said of France and of Italy that they possessed no folk tales. Yet within fifteen years from that date, over one thousand tales had been collected in each country. I am hoping that the present volume may lead to equal activity in this country, and would earnestly beg any reader of this book who knows of similar tales to communicate them, written down as they are told, to me. Care of Mr. Nutt. The only reason, I imagine, why such tales have not hitherto been brought to light is the lamentable gap between the governing and recording classes and the dumb working classes of this country, dumb to others but eloquent among themselves. It would be no unpatriotic task to help to bridge over this gulf by giving a common fund of nursery literature to all classes of the English people. And, in any case, it can do no harm to add to the innocent gaiety of the nation. A word or two as to our title seems necessary. We have called our stories fairy tales, though few of them speak of fairies. The same remark applies to the collection of the Brothers Grimm, and to all the other European collections, which contain exactly the same classes of tales as ours. Yet our stories are what the little ones mean when they clamour for fairy tales, and this is the only name which they give to them. One cannot imagine a child saying, Tell us a folk tale, nurse, or Another nursery tale, please, Grandma. As our book is intended for the little ones, we have indicated its contents by the name they use. The words fairy tales must accordingly be taken to include tales in which occurs something fairy, something extraordinary, fairies, giants, dwarfs, speaking animals. It must be taken also to cover tales in which what is extraordinary is the stupidity of some of the actors. Many of the tales in this volume, as in similar collections for other European countries, are what the folklorists call drolls. They serve to justify the title of Merry England, which used to be given to this country of ours, and indicate unsuspected capacity for fun and humour among the unlettered classes. The story of Tom Tit Tot, which opens our collection, is unequalled among all other folk tales I am acquainted with, for its combined sense of humour and dramatic power. The first adjective of our title also needs a similar extension of its meaning. I have acted on Molière's principle, and have taken what was good wherever I could find it. Thus, a couple of these stories have been found among descendants of English immigrants in America. A couple of others I tell as I heard them myself in my youth in Australia. One of the best was taken down from the mouth of an English gypsy. I have also included some stories that have only been found in lowland scotch. I have felt justified in doing this, as of the twenty-one folk-tales contained in Chambers' Popular Rhymes of Scotland, no less than sixteen are also to be found in an English form. 
With the folk tale, as with the ballad, Lowland Scotch may be regarded as simply a dialect of English, and it is a mere chance whether a tale is extant in one or other, or both. I have also rescued and retold a few fairy tales that only exist nowadays in the form of ballads. There are certain indications that the common form of the English fairy tale was the cante fable, a mixture of narrative and verse, of which the most illustrious example in literature is Aucassin and Licolette. In one case I have endeavoured to retain this form, as the tale in which it occurs, Child Roland, is mentioned by Shakespeare in King Lear, and is probably, as I have shown, the source of Milton's Comus. Late, as they have been collected, some dozen of the tales can be traced back to the 16th century, two of them being quoted by Shakespeare himself. In the majority of instances, I have had largely to rewrite these fairy tales, especially those in dialect, including the lowland Scotch. Children, and sometimes those of larger growth, will not read dialect. I have also had to reduce the flatulent phraseology of the 18th century chapbooks, and to rewrite in simpler style the stories only extant in literary English. I have, however, left a few vulgarisms in the mouths of vulgar people. Children appreciate the dramatic propriety of this as much as their elders. Generally speaking, it has been my ambition to write as a good old nurse will speak when she tells fairy tales. I am doubtful as to my success in catching the colloquial romantic tone appropriate for such narratives, but the thing had to be done, or else my main object, to give a book of English fairy tales, which English children will listen to, would have been unachieved. This book is meant to be read aloud, and not merely taken in by the eye. In a few instances I have introduced or changed an incident. I have never done so, however, without mentioning the fact in the notes. These have been relegated to the obscurity of small print and a back place, while the little ones have been, perhaps unnecessarily, warned off them. They indicate my sources and give a few references to parallels and variants which may be of interest to fellow students of folklore. It is, perhaps, not necessary to inform readers who are not fellow students that the study of folk-tales has pretensions to be a science. It has its special terminology and its own methods of investigation by which it is hoped, one of these days, to gain fuller knowledge of the workings of the popular mind as well as traces of archaic modes of thought and custom. I hope on some future occasion to treat the subject of the English folk-tale on a larger scale and with all the necessary paraphernalia of prolegomena and excursus. I shall then, of course, reproduce my originals with literary accuracy, and have therefore felt the more at liberty on the present occasion to make the necessary deviations from this, in order to make the tales readable for children. Finally, I have to thank those by whose kindness in waiving their rights to some of these stories I have been enabled to compile this book. My friends Mr. E. Clodd, Mr. F. Hines Groom, and Mr. Andrew Lang have thus yielded up to me some of the most attractive stories in the following pages. The Councils of the English and of the American Folklore Societies, and Messrs. Longmans, have also been equally generous. Nor can I close these remarks without a word of thanks and praise to the artistic skill with which my friend, Mr. J. D. Batten, has made the romance and humour of these stories live again in the brilliant designs with which he has adorned these pages. It should be added that the dainty headpieces to Henny Penny and Mr. Fox are due to my old friend, Mr. Henry Ryland. Joseph Jacobs End of the Preface This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joy Chan English Fairy Tales, Collected by Joseph Jacobs Chapter 1. Tom Tit Tot 
Once upon a time there was a woman, and she baked five pies. And when they came out of the oven, they were that overbaked the crusts were too hard to eat. So she says to her daughter, Daughter, says she, put ye them there pies on the shelf, and leave in there a little, and they'll come again. She meant, you know, the crust would get soft. But the girl, she says to herself, Well, if they'll come again, I'll eat em now. And she set to work and ate em all, first and last. Well, come supper time, the woman said, Go you and get one of them there pies. I dare say they've come again now. The girl went and she looked, and there was nothing but the dishes. So back she came and says she, No, they ain't come again. Not one of them, says the mother. Not one of them, says she. Well, come again or not come again, said the woman. I'll have one for supper. But you can't if they ain't come, said the girl. But I can, says she. Go you and bring the best of them. Best or worst, says the girl. I've ate em all, and you can't have one till that's come again. Well, the woman she was done. And she took her spinning to the door to spin, and as she span, she sang. My daughter ate five, five pies today. My daughter ate five, five pies today. The king was coming down the street, and he heard her sing, but what she sang he couldn't hear, so he stopped and said, What was that you were singing, my good woman? The woman was ashamed to let him hear what her daughter had been doing, so she sang instead of that. My daughter has spun five, five skeins today. My daughter has spun five, five skeins today. Stars are mine, said the king. I never heard tell of any one that could do that. Then he said, Look you here, I want a wife, and I'll marry your daughter. But look you here, says he, eleven months out of the year. She shall have all she likes to eat, and all the gowns she likes to get, and all the company she likes to keep. But the last month of the year she'll have to spin five skeins every day, and if she don't, I shall kill her. All right, says the woman, for she thought what a grand marriage that was, and as for the five skeins, when the time came, there'd be plenty of ways of getting out of it, and likely as he'd have forgotten all about it. Well, so they were married, and for eleven months the girl had all she liked to eat, and all the gowns she liked to get, and all the company she liked to keep. But when the time was getting over, she began to think about the skeins, and to wonder if he had em in mind. But not one word did he say about em, and she thought he'd wholly forgotten em. However, the last day of the last month, he takes her to a room she'd never set eyes on before. There was nothing in it but a spinning wheel and a stool. And says he, Now, my dear, here you'll be shut in tomorrow with some victuals and some flax. And if you haven't spun five skeins by the night, your head'll go off. And away he went about his business. Well, she was that frightened. She'd always been such a gatless girl that she didn't so much as know how to spin. And what was she to do tomorrow with no one to come nigh her to help her? She sat down on a stool in the kitchen, and law how she did cry. However, all of a sudden, she heard a sort of a knocking low down on the door. She upped and oped it, and what should she see but a small little black thing with a long tail? That looked up at her right curious, and that said, What are you crying for? What's that to you? says she. Never you mind, that said, but tell me what you are crying for. That won't do me no good if I do, says she. You don't know that, that said, and twirled that's tail round. Well, says she, that won't do no harm if that don't do no good. And she upped and told about the pies and the skeins and everything. This is what I'll do, says the little black thing. I'll come to your window every morning and take the flax and bring it spun at night. What's your pay? says she. That looked out of the corner of that's eyes, 
and that said, I'll give you three guesses every night to guess my name, and if you haven't guessed it before the month's up, you shall be mine. Well, she thought she'd be sure to guess that's name before the month was up. All right, says she, I agree. All right, that says, and law how that twirled that's tail. Well, the next day, her husband took her into the room, and there was the flax and the day's food. Now there's the flax, says he, and if that ain't spun up this night, off goes your head. And then he went out and locked the door. He'd hardly gone when there was a knocking against the window. She upped and she oped it, and there, sure enough, was the little old thing sitting on the ledge. Where's the flax? says he. Here it be, says she, and she gave it to him. Well, come the evening, a knocking came again to the window. She upped and she oped it, and there was the little old thing with five skeins of flax on his arm. Here it be, says he, and he gave it to her. Now what's my name? says he. What, is that Bill? says she. No, that ain't, says he, and he twirled his tail. Is that Ned? says she. No, that ain't, says he. "'and he twirled his tail. "'Well, is that Mark?' says she. "'No, that ain't,' says he, "'and he twirled his tail harder, and away he flew. "'Well, when her husband came in, "'there were the five skeins ready for him. "'I see I shan't have to kill you tonight, my dear,' says he. "'You'll have your food and your flax in the morning,' says he, "'and away he goes. "'Well, every day the flax and the food were brought.' and every day that their little black impet used to come mornings and evenings. And all the day the girl sat trying to think of names to say to it when it came at night, but she never hit on the right one. And as it got towards the end of the month, the impet began to look so maliceful, and that twirled that's tail faster and faster each time she gave a guess. At last it came to the last day but one. The impet came at night, along with the five skeins, and that said, What, ain't you got my name yet? Is that Nicodemus, says she. No, taint, that says. Is that Samuel, says she. No, taint, that says. Oh, well, is that Methuselah, says she. No, taint that neither, that says. Then that looks at her with that's eyes like a coal of fire, and that says, Woman, there's only tomorrow night, and then you'll be mine. And away it flew. Well, she felt that horrid. However, she heard the king coming along the passage. In he came, and when he sees the five skeins, he says, says he, Well, my dear, says he, I don't see but what you'll have your skeins ready tomorrow night as well. And does I reckon I shan't have to kill you? I'll have supper in here tonight. So they brought supper, and another stool for him, and down the two sat. Well, he hadn't eaten but a mouthful or so when he stops and begins to laugh. What is it? says she. A why, says he, I was out a-hunting to-day, and I got away to a place in the wood I'd never seen before, and there was an old chalk-pit, and I heard a kind of a sort of a humming. So I got off my hobby, and I went right quiet to the pit, and I looked down. Well, what should there be but the funniest little black thing you ever set eyes on? And what was that doing but that had a little spinning wheel, and that was spinning wonderful fast, and twirling that's tail? And as that span that sang, Nimmy, nimmy not, my name's Tom Tit Tot. Well, when the girl heard this, she felt as if she could have jumped out of her skin for joy, but she didn't say a word. Next day, that there little thing looked so maliceful when he came for the flax. And when night came, she heard that knocking against the window panes. She oped the window, and that come right in on the ledge. That was grinning from ear to ear, and ooh, that's tail was twirling round so fast. What's my name, that says, as that gave her the skeins. Is that Solomon, she says, pretending to be afeard. 
"'No, taint,' that says, and that came further into the room. "'Well, is that Zebedee?' says she again. "'No, taint,' says the impet, and then that laughed and twirled that tail till you couldn't hardly see it. "'Take time, woman,' that says. "'Next guess, and you're mine.' And that stretched out that's black hands at her. Well, she backed a step or two, and she looked at it, and then she laughed out and says she, pointing her finger at it, Nimmy, nimmy not, your name's Tom Tit Tot. Well, when that heard her, that gave an awful shriek, and away that flew into the dark, and she never saw it any more. End chapter one. Tom Tit Tot. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joy Chan. English Fairy Tales, collected by Joseph Jacobs. Chapter 2 The Three Sillies. Once upon a time there was a farmer and his wife, who had one daughter, and she was courted by a gentleman. Every evening he used to come and see her, and stop to supper at the farmhouse, and the daughter used to be sent down into the cellar to draw the beer for supper. So one evening she had gone down to draw the beer, and she happened to look up at the ceiling while she was drawing and she saw a mallet stuck in one of the beams. It must have been there a long, long time, but somehow or other she had never noticed it before, and she began a-thinking. And she thought it was very dangerous to have that mallet there, for she said to herself, Suppose him and me was to be married, and we was to have a son, and he was to grow up to be a man, and come down into the cellar to draw the beer, like as I'm doing now, and the mallet was to fall on his head and kill him. What a dreadful thing it would be! And she put down the candle and the jug, and sat herself down and began a-crying. Well, they began to wonder upstairs how it was that she was so long drawing the beer, and her mother went down to see after her, and she found her sitting on the settle crying, and the beer running over the floor. "'Why, whatever is the matter?' said her mother. "'Oh, mother,' says she, "'look at that horrid mallet. "'Suppose we was to be married and was to have a son, "'and he was to grow up and was to come down to the cellar to draw the beer, "'and the mallet was to fall on his head and kill him. "'What a dreadful thing it would be!' "'Dear, dear, what a dreadful thing it would be!' said the mother." and she sat her down aside of the daughter, and started a-crying too. Then after a bit, the father began to wonder that they didn't come back, and he went down into the cellar to look after them himself, and there they two sat a-crying, and the beer running all over the floor. "'Whatever is the matter?' says he. "'Why,' says the mother, "'look at that horrid mallet. "'Just suppose,' If our daughter and her sweetheart was to be married, and was to have a son, and he was to grow up, and was to come down into the cellar to draw the beer, and the mallet was to fall on his head and kill him, what a dreadful thing it would be! Dear, 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 so it would, said the father, and he sat himself down aside of the other two, and started a-crying. Now the gentleman got tired of stopping up in the kitchen by himself, and at last he went down into the cellar too, to see what they were after. And there they three sat a-crying side by side, and the beer running all over the floor. And he ran straight and turned the tap. Then he said, Whatever are you three doing sitting there crying and letting the beer run all over the floor? Oh, says the father, Look at that horrid mallet. Suppose you and our daughter was to be married, and was to have a son, and he was to grow up, and was to come down into the cellar to draw the beer, and the mallet was to fall on his head and kill him. 
and then they all started a-crying worse than before. But the gentleman burst out a-laughing, and reached up and pulled out the mallet. And then he said, "'I've travelled many miles, and I never met three such big sillies as you three before. And now I shall start out on my travels again, and when I can find three bigger sillies than you three, then I'll come back and marry your daughter.' So he wished them good-bye, and started off on his travels, and left them all crying because the girl had lost her sweetheart. Well, he set out and he travelled a long way, and at last he came to a woman's cottage that had some grass growing on the roof, and the woman was trying to get her cow to go up a ladder to the grass, and the poor thing durst not go. So the gentleman asked the woman what she was doing. "'Why, look ye,' she said, "'look at all that beautiful grass. "'I'm going to get the cow onto the roof to eat it. "'She'll be quite safe, for I shall tie a string round her neck "'and pass it down the chimney, "'and tie it to my wrist as I go about the house, "'so she can't fall off without my knowing it.' "'Oh, you poor silly,' said the gentleman. "'You should cut the grass and throw it down to the cow.' But the woman thought it was easier to get the cow up the ladder than to get the grass down. So she pushed her and coaxed her and got her up and tied a string round her neck and passed it down the chimney and fastened it to her own wrist. And the gentleman went on his way. But he hadn't gone far when the cow tumbled off the roof and hung by the string tied round her neck and it strangled her. And the weight of the cow tied to her wrist pulled the woman up the chimney, and she stuck fast halfway, and was smothered in soot. Well, that was one big silly. And the gentleman went on and on, and he went to an inn to stop the night, and they were so full at the inn that they had to put him in a double-bedded room, and another traveller was to sleep in the other bed. The other man was a very pleasant fellow, and they got very friendly together. But in the morning, when they were both getting up, the gentleman was surprised to see the other hang his trousers on the knobs of the chest of drawers, and run across the room, and try to jump into them. And he tried over and over again, and couldn't manage it. And the gentleman wondered whatever he was doing it for. At last he stopped and wiped his face with his handkerchief. Oh dear, he says, I do think trousers are the most awkwardest kind of clothes that ever were. I can't think who could have invented such things. It takes me the best part of an hour to get into mine every morning, and I get so hot. How do you manage yours? So the gentleman burst out a laughing and showed him how to put them on, and he was very much obliged to him and said he never should have thought of doing it that way. So that was another big silly. Then the gentleman went on his travels again, and he came to a village, and outside the village there was a pond, and round the pond was a crowd of people, and they had got rakes and brooms and pitchforks reaching into the pond. And the gentleman asked what was the matter. Why, they said, matter enough. Moon's tumbled into the pond, and we can't rake her out anyhow. So the gentleman burst out a-laughing, and told them to look up into the sky, and that it was only the shadow in the water. But they wouldn't listen to him, and abused him shamefully, and he got away as quick as he could. So there was a whole lot of sillies, bigger than them three sillies at home. So the gentleman turned back home again, and married the farmer's daughter. And if they didn't live happy for ever after, that's nothing to do with you or me. End of chapter 2 The Three Sillies This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, Please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joy Chan. English Fairy Tales 
Collected by Joseph Jacobs Chapter 3 The Rose Tree There was once upon a time a good man who had two children, a girl by a first wife, and a boy by the second. The girl was as white as milk, and her lips were like cherries. Her hair was like golden silk, and it hung to the ground. Her brother loved her dearly, but her wicked stepmother hated her. Child, said the stepmother one day, go to the grocer's shop and buy me a pound of candles. She gave her the money, and the little girl went, bought the candles, and started on her return. There was a stile to cross. She put down the candles whilst she got over the stile. Up came a dog, and ran off with the candles. She went back to the grocer's, and she got a second bunch. She came to the stile, set down the candles, and proceeded to climb over. Up came the dog, and ran off with the candles. She went again to the grocer's, and she got a third bunch, and just the same happened. Then she came to her stepmother crying, for she had spent all the money, and had lost three bunches of candles. The stepmother was angry, but she pretended not to mind the loss. She said to the child, Come, lay your head on my lap, that I may comb your hair. So the little one laid her head in the woman's lap, who proceeded to comb the yellow silken hair. And when she combed the hair, fell over her knees, and rolled right down to the ground. Then the stepmother hated her more for the beauty of her hair. So she said to her, I cannot part your hair on my knee. Fetch a billet of wood. So she fetched it. Then said the stepmother, I cannot part your hair with a comb. Fetch me an axe. So she fetched it. Now, said the wicked woman, lay your head down on the billet whilst I part your hair. Well, she laid down her little golden head without fear, and whist, down came the axe, and it was off. So the mother wiped the axe and laughed. Then she took the heart and liver of the little girl, and she stewed them, and brought them into the house for supper. The husband tasted them and shook his head. He said they tasted very strangely. She gave some to the little boy, but he would not eat. She tried to force him, but he refused, and ran out into the garden, and took up his little sister, and put her in a box, and buried the box under a rose tree. And every day he went to the tree and wept, till his tears ran down on the box. One day the rose tree flowered. It was spring, and there among the flowers was a white bird, and it sang and sang and sang like an angel out of heaven. Away it flew, and it went to a cobbler's shop, and perched itself on a tree hard by, and thus it sang. My wicked mother slew me, my dear father ate me, my little brother whom I love sits below, and I sing above, stick, stock, stone, dead. Sing again that beautiful song, said the shoemaker, if you will first give me those little red shoes you are making. The cobbler gave the shoes, and the bird sang the song, then flew to a tree in front of a watchmaker's, and sang, My wicked mother slew me, my dear father ate me, my little brother whom I love sits below, and I sing above, Stick, stock, stone, dead. Oh, the beautiful song! Sing it again, sweet bird, asked the watchmaker. If you will give me first that gold watch and chain in your hand. The jeweller gave the watch and chain. The bird took it in one foot, the shoes in the other, and, after having repeated the song, flew away to where three millers were picking a millstone. The bird perched on a tree and sang. My wicked mother slew me. My dear father ate me. My little brother whom I love sits below, and I sing above. Stick. Then one of the men put down his tool and looked up from his work. Stock. Then the second miller's man 
laid aside his tool and looked up. Stone! Then the third miller's man laid down his tool and looked up. Dead! Then all three cried out with one voice, Oh, what a beautiful song! Sing it, sweet bird, again. If you will put the millstone round my neck, said the bird. The men did what the bird wanted, and away to the tree it flew with the millstone round its neck, the red shoes in one foot, and the gold watch and chain in the other. It sang the song, and then flew home. It rattled the millstone against the eaves of the house, and the stepmother said, It thunders. Then the little boy ran out to see the thunder, and down dropped the red shoes at his feet. It rattled the millstone against the eaves of the house once more, and the stepmother said again, It thunders. Then the father ran out, and down fell the chain about his neck. In ran father and son, laughing and saying, See what fine things the thunder has brought us. Then the bird rattled the millstone against the eaves of the house a third time, and the stepmother said, It thunders again. Perhaps the thunder has brought something for me. And she ran out. But the moment she stepped outside the door, down fell the millstone on her head, and so she died. End of chapter 3 The Rose Tree This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joy Chan English Fairy Tales Collected by Joseph Jacobs Chapter 4 The Old Woman and Her Pig An old woman was sweeping her house, and she found a little crooked sixpence. What? said she. Shall I do with this little sixpence? I will go to market and buy a little pig. As she was coming home, she came to a stile, but the piggy wouldn't go over the stile. She went a little further, and she met a dog. So she said to the dog, Dog, bite pig. Piggy won't go over the stile, and I shan't get home tonight. But the dog wouldn't. She went a little further, and she met a stick. So she said, Stick, stick, beat dog. Dog won't bite pig. Piggy won't get over the stile, and I shan't get home tonight. But the stick wouldn't. She went a little further, and she met a fire. So she said, Fire, fire, burn stick. Stick won't beat dog. Dog won't bite pig. Piggy won't get over the stile and I shan't get home tonight. But the fire wouldn't. She went a little further, and she met some water. So she said, Water, water, quench fire. Fire won't burn stick. Stick won't beat dog. Dog won't bite pig. Piggy won't get over the stile, and I shan't get home tonight. But the water wouldn't. She went a little further, and she met an ox. So she said, Ox, ox, drink water. Water won't quench fire. Fire won't burn stick. Stick won't beat dog. Dog won't bite pig. Piggy won't get over the stile, and I shan't get home tonight. But the ox wouldn't. She went a little further, and she met a butcher. So she said, Butcher, butcher, kill ox. Ox won't drink water. Water won't quench fire. Fire won't burn stick. Stick won't beat dog. Dog won't bite pig. Piggy won't get over the stile, and I shan't get home tonight. But the butcher wouldn't. She went a little further, and she met a rope. So she said, Rope, rope, hang butcher. Butcher won't kill ox. Ox won't drink water. Water won't quench fire. Fire won't burn stick. Stick won't beat dog. Dog won't bite pig. Piggy won't get over the stile, and I shan't get home tonight. But the rope wouldn't. She went a little further, and she met a rat. So she said, Rat, rat, gnaw rope. Rope won't hang butcher. 
Butcher won't kill ox. Ox won't drink water. Water won't quench fire. Fire won't burn stick. Stick won't beat dog. Dog won't bite pig. Piggy won't get over the stile. And I shan't get home tonight. But the rat wouldn't. She went a little further, and she met a cat. So she said, Cat, cat, kill rat. Rat won't gnaw rope. Rope won't hang butcher. Butcher won't kill ox. Ox won't drink water. Water won't quench fire. Fire won't burn stick. Stick won't beat dog. Dog won't bite pig. Piggy won't get over the stile. And I shan't get home tonight. But the cat said to her, If you will go to yonder cow and fetch me a saucer of milk, I will kill the rat. So away went the old woman to the cow. But the cow said to her, If you will go to yonder haystack and fetch me a handful of hay, I'll give you the milk. So away went the old woman to the haystack, and she brought the hay to the cow. As soon as the cow had eaten the hay, she gave the old woman the milk, and away she went with it in a saucer to the cat. As soon as the cat had lapped up the milk, the cat began to kill the rat. The rat began to gnaw the rope. The rope began to hang the butcher. The butcher began to kill the ox. The ox began to drink the water. The water began to quench the fire. The fire began to burn the stick. The stick began to beat the dog. The dog began to bite the pig. The little pig, in a fright, jumped over the stile. And so the old woman got home that night. End of chapter 4 The Old Woman and Her Pig This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joy Chan English Fairy Tales Collected by Joseph Jacobs Chapter 5. How Jack Went to Seek His Fortune Once on a time there was a boy named Jack, and one morning he started to go and seek his fortune. He hadn't gone very far before he met a cat. "'Where are you going, Jack?' said the cat. "'I am going to seek my fortune.' "'May I go with you?' "'Yes,' said Jack. "'The more the merrier.' So on they went, jiggledy-jolt, jiggledy-jolt. They went a little further, and they met a dog. "'Where are you going, Jack?' said the dog. "'I am going to seek my fortune.' "'May I go with you?' "'Yes,' said Jack, "'the more the merrier.' So on they went, jiggledy-jolt, jiggledy-jolt. They went a little further, and they met a goat. "'Where are you going, Jack?' said the goat. "'I am going to seek my fortune.' "'May I go with you?' "'Yes,' said Jack. "'The more the merrier.' So on they went, jiggledy-jolt, jiggledy-jolt. They went a little further, and they met a bull. "'Where are you going, Jack?' said the bull. "'I am going to seek my fortune.' "'May I go with you?' "'Yes,' said Jack. "'The more the merrier.' "'So on they went, jiggledy-jolt, jiggledy-jolt. "'They went a little further, and they met a rooster. "'Where are you going, Jack?' said the rooster. "'I am going to seek my fortune.' "'May I go with you?' "'Yes,' said Jack. "'The more the merrier.' "'So on they went, jiggledy-jolt, jiggledy-jolt. Well, they went on till it was about dark, and they began to think of some place where they could spend the night. About this time they came in sight of a house, and Jack told them to keep still while he went up and looked in through the window. And there were some robbers counting over the money. Then Jack went back and told them to wait till he gave the word, and then to make all the noise they could. So when they were all ready, Jack gave the word, and the cat mewed, and the dog barked, 
and the goat bleated, and the bull bellowed, and the rooster crowed, and altogether they made such a dreadful noise that it frightened the robbers all away. And then they went in and took possession of the house. Jack was afraid the robbers would come back in the night, and so when it came time to go to bed, he put the cat in the rocking chair, and he put the dog under the table, and he put the goat upstairs, and he put the bull down cellar, and the rooster flew up onto the roof, and Jack went to bed. By and by the robbers saw it was all dark, and they sent one man back to the house to look after their money. Before long he came back in a great fright, and told them his story. I went back to the house, said he, and went in, and tried to sit down in the rocking chair, and there was an old woman knitting, and she stuck her knitting needles into me. That was the cat, you know. I went to the table to look after the money, and there was a shoemaker under the table, and he stuck his awl into me. That was the dog, you know. I started to go upstairs, and there was a man up there threshing, and he knocked me down with his flail. That was the goat, you know. I started to go down cellar, and there was a man down there chopping wood, and he knocked me up with his axe. That was the bull, you know. But I shouldn't have minded all that if it hadn't been for that little fellow on top of the house, who kept a hollering, Chuck him up to me! Chuck him up to me! Of course, that was the cock-a-doodle-doo. End of chapter 5 How Jack Went to Seek His Fortune This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joy Chan English Fairy Tales, Collected by Joseph Jacobs Chapter 6. Mr. Vinegar Mr. and Mrs. Vinegar lived in a vinegar bottle. Now one day, when Mr. Vinegar was from home, Mrs. Vinegar, who was a very good housewife, was busily sweeping her house, when an unlucky thump of the broom brought the whole house clitter-clatter, clitter-clatter, about her ears. In an agony of grief, she rushed forth to meet her husband. On seeing him, she exclaimed, "'Oh, Mr. Vinegar, Mr. Vinegar, we are ruined. I have knocked the house down, and it is all to pieces.' Mr. Vinegar then said, "'My dear, let us see what can be done. Here is the door. I will take it on my back, and we will go forth to seek our fortune.' They walked all that day, and at nightfall entered a thick forest. They were both very, very tired, and Mr. Vinegar said, My love, I will climb up into a tree, drag up the door, and you shall follow. He accordingly did so, and they both stretched their weary limbs on the door, and fell fast asleep. In the middle of the night, Mr. Vinegar was disturbed by the sound of voices underneath, and to his horror and dismay found that it was a band of thieves met to divide their booty. "'Here, Jack,' said one, "'here's five pounds for you. "'Here, Bill, here's ten pounds for you. "'Here, Bob, here's three pounds for you.' Mr. Vinegar could listen no longer. His terror was so great that he trembled and trembled and shook down the door on their heads. Away scampered the thieves, but Mr. Vinegar dared not quit his retreat till broad daylight. He then scrambled out of the tree, and went to lift up the door. What did he see but a number of golden guineas? "'Come down, Mrs. Vinegar,' he cried. "'Come down, I say. Our fortune's made. Our fortune's made. Come down, I say.' Mrs. Vinegar got down as fast as she could, and when she saw the money, she jumped for joy. "'Now, my dear,' said she, "'I'll tell you what you shall do. "'There is a fair at the neighbouring town. "'You shall take these forty guineas and buy a cow. 
I can make butter and cheese, which you shall sell at market, and we shall then be able to live very comfortably. Mr. Vinegar joyfully agrees, takes the money, and off he goes to the fair. When he arrived, he walked up and down, and at length saw a beautiful red cow. It was an excellent milker, and perfect in every way. Oh, thought Mr. Vinegar, if I had but that cow, I should be the happiest man alive. So he offers the forty guineas for the cow, and the owner said that, as he was a friend, he'd oblige him. So the bargain was made, and he got the cow, and he drove it backwards and forwards to show it. By and by he saw a man playing the bagpipes. Tweedledum, tweedledee. The children followed him about, and he appeared to be pocketing money on all sides. Well, thought Mr. Vinegar, if I had but that beautiful instrument, I should be the happiest man alive. My fortune would be made. So he went up to the man. Friend, says he, what a beautiful instrument that is, and what a deal of money you must make. Why, yes, said the man, I make a great deal of money, to be sure, and it is a wonderful instrument. Oh, cried Mr. Vinegar, how I should like to possess it. Well, said the man, as you are a friend, I don't much mind parting with it. You shall have it for that red cow. Done, said the delighted Mr. Vinegar. So the beautiful red cow was given for the bagpipes. He walked up and down with his purchase, but it was in vain he tried to play a tune, and instead of pocketing pence, the boys followed him hooting, laughing, and pelting. Poor Mr. Vinegar! His fingers grew very cold, and just as he was leaving the town, he met a man with a fine, thick pair of gloves. Oh, my fingers are so very cold, said Mr. Vinegar to himself. Now if I had but those beautiful gloves, I should be the happiest man alive. He went up to the man and said to him, Friend, you seem to have a capital pair of gloves there. Yes, truly, cried the man, and my hands are as warm as possible this cold November day. Well, said Mr. Vinegar, I should like to have them. What will you give, said the man, as you are a friend, I don't much mind letting you have them for those bagpipes. Done, cried Mr. Vinegar. He put on the gloves and felt perfectly happy as he trudged homewards. At last he grew very tired, when he saw a man coming towards him with a good stout stick in his hand. Oh, said Mr. Vinegar, that I had but that stick, I should then be the happiest man alive. He said to the man, Friend, what a rare good stick you have got. Yes, said the man, I have used it for many a long mile, and a good friend it has been. But if you have a fancy for it, as you are a friend, I don't mind giving it to you for that pair of gloves. Mr. Vinegar's hands were so warm, and his legs so tired, that he gladly made the exchange. As he drew near to the wood where he had left his wife, he heard a parrot on a tree calling out his name. Mr. Vinegar, you foolish man, you blockhead, you simpleton, you went to the fair and laid out all your money in buying a cow. Not content with that, you changed it for bagpipes on which you could not play, and which were not worth one-tenth of the money. You fool, you had no sooner got the bagpipes than you changed them for the gloves, which were not worth one-quarter of the money. And when you had got the gloves, you changed them for a poor, miserable stick. And now, for your forty guineas, cow, bagpipes, and gloves, you have nothing to show but that poor, miserable stick, which you might have cut in any hedge. On this the bird laughed and laughed, and Mr. Vinegar, falling into a violent rage, threw the stick at its head. The stick lodged in the tree, and he returned to his wife without money, cow, bagpipes, gloves, or stick, and she instantly gave him such a sound cudgelling that she almost broke every bone in his skin. End of chapter 6 Mr. Vinegar
This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joy Chan. English Fairy Tales, collected by Joseph Jacobs. Chapter 7 Nix, Nought, Nothing. There once lived a king and a queen, as many a one has been. They were long married and had no children. But at last a baby boy came to the queen, when the king was away in the far countries. The queen would not christen the boy till the king came back, and she said, We will just call him Nix Nought Nothing until his father comes home. But it was long before he came home and the boy had grown a nice little laddie. At length the king was on his way back, but he had a big river to cross, and there was a whirlpool, but he could not get over the water. But a giant came up to him and said, I'll carry you over. But the king said, What's your pay? Oh, give me nix nought nothing, and I will carry you over the water on my back. The king had never heard that his son was called Nix Nought Nothing, and so he said, Oh, I'll give you that and my thanks into the bargain. When the king got home again, he was very happy to see his wife again, and his young son. She told him that she had not given the child any name, but just Nix Nought Nothing, until he should come home again himself. The poor king was in a terrible case. He said, What have I done? I promised to give the giant who carried me over the river on his back nix nought nothing. The king and the queen were sad and sorry, but they said, When the giant comes, we will give him the henwife's boy. He will never know the difference. The next day the giant came to claim the king's promise, and he sent for the henwife's boy, and the giant went away with the boy on his back. He travelled till he came to a big stone, and there he sat down to rest. He said, Hidge hodge on my back, what time of day is that? The poor little boy said, It is the time that my mother, the henwife, takes up the eggs for the queen's breakfast. The giant was very angry, and dashed the boy's head on the stone, and killed him. So he went back in a tower of temper, and this time they gave him the gardener's boy. He went off with him on his back, till they got to the stone again when the giant sat down to rest. And he said, Hidge hodge on my back, what time of day do you make that? The gardener's boy said, Sure it's the time that my mother takes up the vegetables for the queen's dinner. Then the giant was right wild and dashed his brains out on the stone. Then the giant went back to the king's house in a terrible temper, and said he would destroy them all if they did not give him nix nought nothing this time. They had to do it, and when he came to the big stone the giant said, What time of day is that? Nix nought nothing said, It is the time that my father the king will be sitting down to supper. The giant said, I've got the right one now, and took nix nought nothing to his own house, and brought him up till he was a man. The giant had a bonny daughter, and she and the lad grew very fond of each other. The giant said one day to Nix Nought Nothing, I've work for you tomorrow. There is a stable seven miles long, and seven miles broad, and it has not been cleaned for seven years, and you must clean it tomorrow, or I will have you for my supper. The giant's daughter went out next morning with the lad's breakfast, and found him in a terrible state, for always, as he cleaned out a bit, it just fell in again. The giant's daughter said she would help him, and she cried all the beasts in the field, and all the fowls of the air, and in a minute they all came, and carried away everything that was in the stable, and made it all clean before the giant came home. He said, Shame on the wit that helped you! but I have a worse job for you tomorrow. Then he said to Nix Nought Nothing, 
There's a lake seven miles long, and seven miles deep, and seven miles broad, and you must drain it tomorrow by nightfall, or else I'll have you for my supper. Nix not nothing began early next morning, and tried to lave the water with his pail, but the lake was never getting any less, and he didn't know what to do. But the giant's daughter called on all the fish in the sea to come and drink the water, and very soon they drank it dry. When the giant saw the work done, he was in a rage and said, "'I've a worse job for you tomorrow. "'There is a tree seven miles high and no branch on it, "'till you get to the top, and there is a nest with seven eggs in it, "'and you must bring down all the eggs without breaking one, "'or else I'll have you for my supper.' At first the giant's daughter did not know how to help Nix Nought Nothing. She cut off first her fingers and then her toes, and made steps of them, and he clomb the tree and got all the eggs safe till he came just to the bottom, and then one was broken. So they determined to run away together, and after the giant's daughter had tidied up her hair a bit and got her magic flask, they set out together as fast as they could run and they hadn't got but three fields away when they looked back and saw the giant walking along at top speed after them. "'Quick, quick!' called out the giant's daughter. "'Take my comb from my hair and throw it down.' Nix Nought Nothing took her comb from her hair and threw it down, and out of every one of its prongs there sprung up a fine thick briar in the way of the giant. You may be sure it took him a long time to work his way through the briar bush, and by the time he was well through, Nix Nought Nothing and his sweetheart had run on a tidy step away from him. But he soon came along after them, and was just like to catch him up when the giant's daughter called out to Nix Nought Nothing. Take my hair dagger and throw it down, quick, quick! So Nix Nought Nothing threw down the hair dagger, and out of it grew as quick as lightning a thick hedge of sharp razors placed criss-cross. The giant had to tread very cautiously to get through all this, and meanwhile the young lovers ran on and on and on, till they were nearly out of sight. But at last the giant was through, and it wasn't long before he was like to catch them up. But just as he was stretching out his hand to catch Nix Nought Nothing, his daughter took out her magic flask and dashed it on the ground. And as it broke, out of it welled a big, big wave that grew and that grew, till it reached the giant's waist, and then his neck. And when it got to his head, he was drowned dead, and dead, and dead indeed. So he goes out of the story. But Nix Nought Nothing fled on till where do you think they came to? Why, to near the castle of Nix Nought Nothing's father and mother. But the giant's daughter was so weary that she couldn't move a step further. So Nix Nought Nothing told her to wait there while he went and found out a lodging for the night. And he went on towards the lights of the castle, and on the way he came to the cottage of the henwife, whose boy had had his brains dashed out by the giant. Now she knew Nix Nought Nothing in a moment, and hated him because he was the cause of her son's death. So when he asked his way to the castle, she put a spell upon him, and when he got to the castle, no sooner was he let in than he fell down dead asleep upon a bench in the hall. The king and queen tried all they could do to wake him up, but all in vain. So the king promised that if any lady could wake him up, she should marry him. Meanwhile, the giant's daughter was waiting and waiting for him to come back, and she went up into a tree to watch for him. The gardener's daughter, going to draw water in the well, saw the shadow of the lady in the water, and thought it was herself, and said, "'If I'm so bonny, if I'm so brave, why do you send me to draw water?' So she threw down her pail, and went to see if she could wed the sleeping stranger. And she went to the henwife, who taught her an unspelling catch, which would keep Nix Nought Nothing awake, as long as the gardener's daughter liked." So she went up to the castle and sang her catch, and Nix Nought Nothing was wakened for a bit, and they promised to wed him to the gardener's daughter. Meanwhile, 
the gardener went down to draw water from the well, and saw the shadow of the lady in the water. So he looks up and finds her, and he brought the lady from the tree, and led her into his house. And he told her that a stranger was to marry his daughter, and took her up to the castle, and showed her the man. And it was Nix Nought Nothing, asleep in a chair. And she saw him, and cried to him, Waken, waken, and speak to me. But he would not waken, and soon she cried, I cleaned the stable, I laved the lake, and I clomb the tree, and all for the love of thee, and thou wilt not waken and speak to me. The king and the queen heard this, and came to the bonny young lady, and she said, I cannot get Nix Nought nothing to speak to me for all that I can do. Then were they greatly astonished when she spoke of Nix Nought nothing, and asked where he was, and she said, He that sits there in the chair. Then they ran to him and kissed him, and called him their own dear son. So they called for the gardener's daughter, and made her sing her charm, and he wakened and told them all that the giant's daughter had done for him, and of all her kindness. Then they took her in their arms and kissed her, and said she should now be their daughter, for their son should marry her. But they sent for the henwife and put her to death, and they lived happy all their days. End of chapter 7 Nick's Nought Nothing